Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Yes, welcome back to the Radically Loved Podcast. I am here with Tessa. Hello. 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 Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Well, first of all, I want to say a big thank you to you, Tessa, for taking the reins and hosting the show the last couple of weeks. It's been so nice to hear your voice and to hear you interview all of these really incredible people. Like, how has it been for you? Oh my gosh, I've been loving it. It's been such an honor. And it's, uh, I love doing this anyways. So it's always fun when you, I mean, not, I love doing it with you, but it's always like, oh, I get to interview this person because I read their books too. I read the pitches and it's like, these are some really interesting people doing really interesting thing in their own right. So it's so fun to actually get to speak with them in real time. And I always learn something new and feel inspired to try something new. So it's, it's been really fun. Yeah, I've learned a lot. And you're doing such a great job. And I'm really not that you need validation. We've talked about this before, but I'm really proud of you. Thank you. (laughs) I love it. So to let everybody know, I have been teaching at Headspace. I just started, well, I don't want to say just started. It's been literally like since (laughs) August of this year, but it's been such a huge honor and a pretty big undertaking. I've been recording content for Headspace. I'm also going to be hosting Radio Headspace for the entire month of February, So hopefully Tessa can take the reins on a couple more episodes here for us. So just know you're going to, yes, you're going to be in great hands. And if you are just really missing me, (laughs) you can just head over to Radio Headspace and check out the content that I've created there. It really has, I've learned so much in this process of just working with a different company and creating content in a very different way. You know, when you are a solopreneur, you're so used to just creating the things that you want or the things that you think your audience and students will enjoy and like. And I mean, the type of data that a big company like Headspace has, I mean, they can really get into the deepest types of needs of people's mental health and what they're looking for content wise. And it's really great to be able to create content for those needs, right? I've never necessarily done market research into my tribe to be like, hey, what do you guys think of this? Or should we do more of this? I mean, I have loosely asked, but I've never seen the data, right? I'll get emails. Somebody sends me a DM and says, can you do more content on sleep? Your wish is my command. Like we can do that. And so 
it's just a different type of experience, but one that has really, how do I say, stretched me in different ways with regard to how I'm used to doing my work. And I actually really have been enjoying it. And I think that the content's really great. I've had some great feedback with the beta testers. So I'm really excited for our community here, the Radically Loved community, to go over to Headspace and and check out the content that I'm creating. I'm curious to see how, how it lands for everybody. Okay, so that being said, today, welcome to part one of the best of 2022. So Tessa and I will be sharing some of our top episodes of this last season. And I think that for me, I just continue to be a student and I'm continually inspired by the people that we have on the show. And it's just always so surprising to me, like the things that you learn when you're having a conversation with somebody. And that's actually one of the big reasons why I started the podcast in the first place, right? Because I wanted to be able to have these conversations with people that I'm really inspired by. So I don't know. What do you think? I mean, the same. I I have my own podcast for a very similar reason. I think the impetus behind it for me was I would find myself in these really deep, meaningful, prolific conversations. And, And originally it was just with my friends. And I was like gosh, we should be recording this because I I know so many people who would benefit from this knowledge or your expertise on that subject, or just even your perspective doesn't necessarily always have to be expertise, but yeah, it's like knowledge is power and sharing it with other people is inspiring. And that's what moves us. I think ultimately to change is when we share things that we've tried and we all have different life experiences that, that can help one another, that can lift each other up. Yeah, I mean that is oof saying it saying it lightly, right? I mean, yeah, lightly. It's, it's a it's a constant. It's a wheel that keeps on turning whether we want it to turn or not. So, I always like to begin the year with a reflection of the year that has just passed because I feel like a lot of the times we put our attention and our energy on what we're going to bring in the new year. We make a list, we make vision boards, we make plans, we create a huge list of items that we want to accomplish for the year to come. And I feel like rarely do we spend the time to reflect on all the things that we did the year prior, right? It's just one thing to the next. And so at the beginning of the year, my favorite thing to do is to reflect back on what the biggest lessons were personally and with regard to what I do for a living, basically in every area of my life. And when I'm thinking about this podcast and I'm thinking about conversations we had this last season, the top three that came to mind to me were the conversation we had with Rod Stryker, my teacher, and the conversation I had with Young Pueblo and the conversation I had with Carmen Rita Wong. And I think with the conversation I had with Rod, it was the first episode of the season and it was a little just intense for me. I don't want to say intense. I'm like awkward is really the word that I'm trying to say. (laughs) I guess I could say that. 
Be real here. <laughs> yeah, look, that first conversation of the season was very awkward for me because here is somebody that I've followed for over a decade that has taught me so much that I owe so much of my knowledge to. And he was going through a very difficult time in his life. And for me to have this conversation about being accountable, about the challenges of moving forward, about navigating intellectual boundaries and the gap between intent and impact, it was so such a powerful conversation that will stay with me. And I think it was such a really heartfelt, honest, genuine conversation that I feel like a lot of people may not be open to having because it is a little awkward and a little, it could be difficult for both people. Thankfully, I love my teacher and I have a lot of respect for him and for his ability to just keep doing the work. So that's my personal opinion. And I really want us to just take a listen to the clip that I chose to see what people think of it. And the other conversation that I was really inspired and moved by was the conversation I had with Carmen Rita Wong. Her book was so... That memoir, Why Didn't You Tell Me?, was so beautifully written. And she has such an incredible story. It's a a memoir if you haven't read it already. It's about Carmen's experience of race and culture in America. And we had such a great conversation about her discovering who her real father was, her unlearning process, the disempowerment of women in politics. I mean, we kind of went, we try to cover all of the topics, but the conversation was extremely compelling. And the last of my best of is with none other than Young Pueblo. My conversation with Diego was so beautiful. We talk about the spiritual bypassing trend. We talk about healing through... We talked about healing through politics. I don't remember that. Yeah. I mean, he talks about his experience in... I mean, it's an interesting way to phrase that, right? Like healing through politics. But he definitely brings up the subject of how divisive politics can be and what do we do with that in in terms of healing on our healing journey, like yes. how do we trust? who do we trust? What do we do when we feel like, you know, <laughs> politics, politicians, government, yeah. whatever it is, who do we trust? What sources do we go to for information that we need yeah. to have? Yeah. He also talked about writing during the pandemic, which is something I also did. And so we definitely bonded on that. So I think it was a really great conversation. I hope that everybody enjoys my top three picks and I look forward to hearing what your top three picks Join us next week for Tessa's top three of 2022. Hello, friends. Perhaps you've heard me talk about Remedy Plus before on this podcast, or you've seen me post about them on social media. I love this brand because they make the tastiest performance boosting products I've ever tried. And what makes Remedy Plus super special is that they use only the finest plant-based ingredients so you can feel great knowing that you're energizing your body naturally. 
Two of my favorite Remedy Plus products are their delicious chocolate berry flavored protein bar and their cinnamon agave flavored energy shot. And now these two great items are going to be made available for purchase together in Remedy Plus's newest offering, the Power Pack. Each Power Pack contains one protein bar and one energy shot. And it is a super smart way to fuel your body either before a workout or simply to tie you over in between meals. Look, we all know that when your batteries are running low, performance levels are completely affected. I choose to incorporate Remedy Plus into my daily routine because I want to get the most out of my day and I want to do so naturally. Remedy Plus products taste great and they help me raise my game in everything I do. See what Remedy Plus can do for you. Visit www.myremedyproducts.com to learn more. And if you use code ROSIE20, you will save 20% off of all of their great performance supporting products. That's myremedyproducts.com. Use the code ROSIE20. Or you can simply go to the info button of this podcast and click the link. There was a lot of uh, learning that happened during that time, I'm sure. And it's always a difficult thing to discuss. And for me personally, I always find it a difficult thing to even probe on when there's other people involved, you know, and you only have one person. It's like you want to be able to share your experience, your feelings, what you learned from it, where you want to go from where you are now. I'm fascinated with this dynamic, right? The dynamic that we're in. How do we move through having an experience like this as a community? You know, I've been studying with you for almost 10 years, more than 10 years. I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't really actually think at the moment. And this has definitely created a shift in you as a person, obviously, but as a community, obviously, the last two years have been (laughs) a big learning for everyone on the planet. But I I find that situations like this always open the door for an opportunity to learn something. Yeah, lots. I mean, just to kind of give you a sequence. So after it becomes public, I knew I had to respond and I knew I had to fill in a little bit of, I had to be accountable. First time anything like this had happened in 38 years. I had to become accountable to the people who had studied with me and my teacher and my senior students and my family and this woman. Yeah. What does that accountability look like? I mean, for people. Well, first, are- I mean, first of all, it's not to deny, you know, right. and, and that that was part one. And then part two is just really acknowledging the the fundamental mistake around being in an up power position, by the way, a little more than a year ago, I wouldn't have had that language. So part of it was taking responsibility as the, what I've, what I've since learned and have a better, clearly a better sense of, and, you know, intellectually I had a sense of that before, which is obviously there's a ethical boundary you don't cross. Teachers should be a position and needs to be a position where we earn trust on a regular basis. And we maintain that trust no matter what. And I violated that trust. So accountability then literally looked like a letter that acknowledged the transgression and a full, a complete and utter apology and recognition of acknowledgement of my regret 
and my profound sorrow that I really understood that news of that was going to really hit a lot of people hard, people who had trusted me. And um, my saying that was incredibly, I mean, it was completely honest. I, I did have profound regret. So that's where it began. It began then also by going to my family and telling them there are dynamics in this that I'm not going to share just to protect them and to protect in a sense, in respect to this person. But really I essentially that's where that acknowledgement came. And, you know, and then furthermore, it was to send that letter took a couple of days to write a couple, three, four days to write just because I really wanted to own the responsibility of it and didn't want to blame it on my personal life or anyone else. Nothing, just take responsibility for it. And then we sent that letter out to 25,000 people, which was my email list. I was certainly aware that it was going to cause a lot of hurt and pain. The news of it was not necessarily my letter. My hope was that the letter was expressed my profound humility and sorrow, frankly, about my actions and my choices. And so it began to take a life of its own in a way within the community Some of it was really surprising. And then even cultural differences, America versus Europe versus other parts of the world, how they were reacting. Some were, okay, you're a human being. Can we move on? You know, different reactions from all different parts of the world. And then I really wanted to let it stand and begin this process of repair for myself to understand. There was an ethics committee, which was part of Par Yoga been developed years before it's a code of ethics and clearly I had violated those that code and then you know really self-reflection and understand looking to seek to understand it on the side what was happening then simultaneously is it began to turn into social media a social media kind of gradually I wouldn't call it a firestorm but what not initially but it would become that and the main thing Rosie before we go any further here's what I really want to say I was responsible and I am responsible for my actions. And they were wrong on many levels and they were disappointing to me. And I disappointed a lot of people. It was a mistake. So anything that we talk beyond my, beyond that is not an excuse, but over this past year, it was really important that I did, that I did a searching self-inquiry as to why it happened. What was missing? One of the things I said was the teachings didn't fail me. I failed the teachings. Hmm. You know, I knew in my conscience, there was never a moment that I didn't know in my conscience that I had crossed a boundary that I'd never crossed before and it was wrong, but I did. We can talk about that. And uh, so whatever we talk about subsequently, social climate, the firestorms on social media, the uh, whatever, none of it is an excuse. It's just part of perhaps an opportunity for me to learn uh, the searches Perhaps we can say some things that might help other people. Yeah. Turns out, yes. So let's just, let's just, I just want to really make it clear. These are two separate things. Made a mistake, made a mistake. Having a conversation about it is to look at the underpinnings of human beings and social, our social flow and what all social dynamics and what that's like. Your openness to have that conversation is one of the reasons I really wanted to yeah. do it with you. And I've remained quiet and behind the scenes for this past year. This is the first time we're having this conversation. 
Yeah. What has that been like for you to really go into that place? Because I have also had time to think about this and put myself in this position. And, and obviously, you know, I we're part of the same community. I, I know about the social media hellstorm that can potentially become really distracting. And not to minimize people's opinions, I'm just saying that it's never productive. I've never had a conversation on social media in limited characters that actually moved the needle in one way or another. They're very much, it's a nuanced topic that requires a nuanced conversation. And part of my intention with having this conversation too is really to to understand and to be able to see where we can we can be better like what do we take from this experience like how do we move forward because it's so easy when somebody's hurt to throw the person away you know to throw the situation away or to say oh i'm never ever going to listen to what this person has to say or this person's wrong or this is never going to, I can't forgive this. You know, we we go into these uh, finalities and I feel that for myself, that's never been my way. And, and I've talked to you at length about it's not part of my fabric to be that way because if it was, I'd be in jail or I'd be a drug addict or I'd be somewhere on the streets, living on the streets of Los Angeles, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that it's very important for myself to be able to acknowledge the teachings that I've learned in a way to utilize it to serve our highest good, right? How do we how do we take this experience and and have the conversation and and ask questions and and move move forward, right? I think it's actually really great that you took the time to inquire and do the work that you you did and Again, I don't I've never been in the position that you're in. So so for me, I all I can do is is empathize for this situation in its entirety for all parties involved. Right. I've said this before. You have a family, like there's a lot of humans, people, personnel involved in the situation. I think what I'm most interested in hearing from you is moving forward from this mistake that you've acknowledged. How do you even begin to, like, how do you even examine the parts of you that you were conscious of where you said, Mm -hmm. okay, like, Mm -hmm. I knew this was happening. Now I made this mistake. Now what? Right? Like, where do you go from that point? Yeah. I mean, thanks for that. Thanks for asking that. And the truth was, I couldn't know how to go forward until I went backward. And I began to understand what, what, how, what, how, where, again, it was like, I had to go backward and, and thank goodness I got amazing advice about who to reach out to. And there's no reason she should remain anonymous. Cedar Barstow's phenomenal therapist who wrote a book called the right use of power. And so there was this kind of dual track opportunity to learn. The first was really understand that, you know, come to terms with my personal my humanity, my fallibility, and specifically what was in place that could lead lead to me making this mistake. And I would offer that it was in place years, decades before, despite never having passed that, you know, ethical Rubicon, you know. The other track was to really get a better understanding 
of what it means to be in a position of authority. I was never taught that. In fact, I got a very mixed message from my teacher around never assuming, this is kind of what I got early on, never take on the ego of a teacher. And in fact, no one should know you're a teacher unless they see you teaching. I think I know now what he meant. But what happened to me was to kind of look to blend the two. So I just looked like a guy who had studied a bunch, who had practiced a bunch, but I was just a guy. And here I am standing in front of you. I'm just a person with this experience I have as a, as a practitioner and as a teacher and as a student, as opposed to understanding that the moment we stand in front of somebody, we have authority. Whether we deserve it or not, we're suddenly in a position of authority and not fully grasping the complexity and the sensitivity of that, which this last year has provided. The promise when, when we first kind of interviewed each other about whether this was the right person to work with, she said something that actually brought me a little bit to tears. And she said, um, you know, this work that we're going to, I would do with you is, is going to supersede what you knew about your relationship to your students. And you're going to know in your body that your students will be safe always. Now, why I was struck by that is because that's all I've wanted my whole life, is students to be safe. And I, and I did, in fact, receive emails from folks who said, hey, that was not my experience of you. What's happening on social media and the way you're being portrayed, that was not my experience. But what struck me is that she was going to teach me, and we were going to engage in a process where it became so organic that I wouldn't have to be doing this intellectual boundary thing, which I did for a long, you know, for decades. So that was part of the search. The other part of the search was to understand what could I do more effectively as a leader to ensure that the future version of whatever I did would be better, would support a culture of more, not a single authority, but rather an authority who, someone who has authority, but then who is empowering others to be also authorities less, if you will, hierarchical, and more of a shared cooperative community. And that also had to come into play. And that was part of our my education with her. And I did that work in part. It was one of the agreements I made with the ethics committee that I would do that work. I fulfilled it in terms of how long I would do it a long time ago. But I've continued the work because just because she's so extraordinary and the work has been so profound. And, uh, and I'm not done learning. Yeah. That's great. I, I wish that we could all do that training. I mean, it sounds like it, it's something that we, anybody who teaches or is in that role of position of power should have that type of understanding. I feel like it's so easy to let the boundaries be blurred. I know that having the sort of background that I have where it's more intellectual and those boundaries are very clear. You know, I was, you know, the the very yoga works way was like, you don't befriend your students. Like there is a line and you just, and you don't go and, and you do these certain things. And in a way that rigidity sometimes kept me in this really bizarre place of, I have to be separate now than the people in my community. And I didn't enjoy that. Like that didn't feel good in my body to be able to have that because part of the way I see it is more 
along the lines of what you're saying, a more communal experience where I respect my elders, I respect my teachers, I respect the people that I've learned from at the same time. I want to feel like I'm being empowered as opposed to, no, you have to do what I say in how I say it, or you're not getting the teachings, right? So does that make sense? It does. And it's tricky. And the reason it's tricky is because, look, I certainly didn't get into teaching because I thought I was going to make a good living from it or a living. In 1980, that was a joke, become a yoga teacher. There was like 10 of us in Los Angeles, you know. Now, my God, you know, one block, there's 10 yoga teachers. But what I was going to say is uh, the difficult part is one of the reasons we do teach, especially because it was a pre-Zoom era where we actually got to see and be in a room with people. We can see and feel a certain personal fulfillment by virtue of making people feel better, just by virtue of like taking them in a 90 minute, 60 minute class from one place to a better place. Man, that feels great. But where does it feel great? Yeah. How much is that fulfilling a personal need that I have to have value? Now we're starting to talk about one of the things I just realized how powerful and, and perhaps even misplaced that was, which is how much personal fulfillment do I get from this per professional role? And that's given the nature of the personality, given the nature of how personal this is and how you become idolized or like any power differential position, how there's projection and transference and all these things start happening really quickly to not have that understanding that you're describing around those boundaries for me was, was quite tricky, you know, and, and on the one hand, and here's the, again, another level of trickiness on the one hand, Rosie caring that I was seen as being, having value in people's lives made me good at what I did because I was invested. I've been invested my whole life in making people feel better. And at the same time, I'm aware that there was a point where that, those lines between personal fulfillment and professional fulfillment started to blur. I used to think, you know, you can't achieve yourself out of your skin in a racist country, right? So that was the other thing. There's all these influences on us. And writing this book really made clear to me that it's time to get back to my OG self. Who am I if all of that falls away? Yeah. Oh, God, Carmen, that is deep. <laughs> you know, I'm so curious too, just as a working professional, how is the culture of the Latina in the workplace changed now in 2022? I would say what, like 20 years ago, you know, 10 oh. years ago even. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious, like, how has it changed? Well, from the beginning, you know, I write in the book about how my first job at Christie's Auction House on Park Avenue, their original address, I mean, talk about what an environment, you know, global British art auction house. I changed their dress code. They had, women were not allowed to wear pants. And that's in, you know, the 90s. That's really insane. And you know me, I mean, look, we look pressed and dressed and good. 
at all times, especially in the workplace. And I made the argument that I look better than some people wearing skirts. I'm more professional for clients than some people wearing skirts. So why would you, anyway, that was my first form of rebellion there, but things have changed quite a bit. You know, when I had my show, I had to fight to wear hoops. They were deemed too ethnic. Yes, yes. And I was rocking my cat eye, which I've been doing since, which I didn't do today, but I've been doing for since I was 16 years old. I had to fight for that. You know, I had to straighten my hair. I had to, all of that. Uh, so much has changed, even in the past five years, like the Crown Act, to be able to wear your hair natural, to see, you know, there's a discussion now, of course, about the chola look and how it's being appropriated and all this yeah. stuff. Look, we are the original influencers. We, to the ability to be able to, to work and be yourself and proud of your community and how you show up is an incredible advantage. And I love seeing it happen. Love yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I think back, I, I used to manage a hair salon oh. back in the day yeah, in the middle, mid early 2000s. It was like my first real job. And, you know, I was like a 21 year old kid managing like 40 plus celebrity hairstylists in Ooh. West Hollywood. Right. Whoa. So that was like, I was in that. And oh God, the cheese man. Oh, you have no idea. I'm like, we could stay on after this and I'm happy to share all the stories. But yeah, I remember in the beginning, like you show up ready, you show up as you are and it being sort of not the look of the time, right? It's like, maybe can you dress it down a bit or, you know, just maybe like not the cat eye. I'm like, I love that you're talking about the cat eye. It's like, (laughs) I think initially too, you know, I I've had this experience at different times in my career, especially even entering the world of yoga and meditation. I mean, come on, you know, like the experience that you had going into the library and looking at those spines, I had the same reaction when I got into the world of meditation and mindfulness. Like there wasn't any teachers that look like me at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like, where are my people? Like, where yeah. are, and I grew up and I'm in LA, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, oh my God. you know, yeah. and I think that for me, it was the same incentive where I'm like, how can I bring this practice to people like the people that I grew up with, you know, like, how do I expand this more and bring more of my people into a world that is going to be helpful for them, for their state of, of being right. So I love that you're saying that and you can call that out. I think it's really important for us to be able to recognize like the leaps and bounds that we've made even, yeah, even just thinking 20 years is not that long. It's really not that long ago. It sounds intense, (laughs) but I mean, but I mean, if you think about it respectively, like my show was only 2008, 2009. I'm fighting to wear hoops. Yeah. Are you kidding? They're being called ethnic. Yeah, but I'm not surprised, you know? Look, and now, you know, a lot of things is like everything goes. So even in the past, I say in the past five years, especially in the past two years, we have seen tremendous change. Yeah. Thank God. If you can show up to work yourself, that is the energy that you can put to your work that is less of a cost emotionally, mentally, physically, to have to constantly dull yourself or to put on a performance, which I had to do a lot of my career, which is 
can be, you realize later, painful. It's exhausting. Yeah. You just, just want to show up as you. Yeah. And, well, and I love that you're talking about that because obviously it relates to our identity. And I do want to get into some of the topics yes. in your book. And you found out later in your life that the man who you thought was your biological father wasn't. Can you talk a bit more about what that was like and how that affected your sense of identity? Ah, yes. Well, I got the role of the dice in life where I had the Dominican Afro-Latina, you know, of African descent mother and Chinese father. And we lived in Harlem initially. Then they split up. She married Anglo-American. We moved to New Hampshire, which is like, that's how she used to say it. There, <laughs> there were none of us. New Hampshire. There were none of us there. None of us, right? We were pulled away from our family, language, culture, food. It was all about assimilation. It was all about erasure. And finding out though, that biologically, and this was 20 years ago, I find out that biologically, Poppy, Poppy Wong, as I call him, wasn't my father, was so devastating. You know, I tried to do it justice in the book as to understanding like how, you know, how do you stop being that person? What I've realized, even though the, the whole mystery, by the way, was only solved last summer doing edits of the book. Wow. So the epilogue is the most recent mystery solved, but it really allowed me to think as I wrote this book and understand because Poppy passed away in the summer, this summer, he was my father. So am I biologically Chinese? No. But am I a Wong? Yes. I will always be a Wong. There's race, there's culture. As we see in Latinaness, right? Mm -hmm. We come in all races. So there is no limitation there. And the same thing applies in my life. My nieces are Wongs. My brother was a Wong. You know, my daughter, six, she's in Mandarin six. You know, like this is part of our lives. That biological tie was, was sad in some ways, but in, the, in other ways, I don't know how much it changed. Yeah. You know, it hurt to have it disappear, but guess what? I still was taking those late night calls from Poppy saying, come what are you doing? You know, I still had to, you know, get him into hospice and I still had to bury him and intern him actually. Sorry. He's of course Buddhist. So we had a Buddhist ceremony. That is what family is. Family yeah. shows up. Yeah. So he, I think that that's up. such a, a beautiful lesson, especially in your book, right? It's like, we, it's what some people say. It's like your chosen family, you know, and sometimes the people in your life that you choose to be closest to are not your blood, you know, and that doesn't change your devotion, loyalty, and love for them. And I'm curious to ask you this because it's something that I was thinking about as I was reading, like we have this idea of this family, this, what is it called? The the sort of visual, the white picket fence, the oh, yes. American dream type of family. Yeah. Uh, nu nuclear family. Nuclear family. With, uh, with the white picket fence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, and growing up in the States, you know, growing up in the US, like we have that messaging throughout our entire lives. It's in show, it's in TV shows, it's in wow. media, it's in imaging and marketing. But to me, I'm like, that's not, uh, growing up in a Hispanic household, you know, I have a different 
that family doesn't look, that family doesn't react how my, I mean, like the people that I'm around do not do that. Right. No. And, and that's what my mother was chasing. She was chasing what she was told was the American dream. She marries an Anglo-American. He builds her a house. She learns how to drive a car. You know, she, you know, that sort of what it is was tragedy. It's tragedy to come from a culture that values community and interdependence. And yes, we can also be independent in that. We can also have boundaries. We can, we can do these things. It's a dance, but we can do these things. But to do that and to go into a culture, that white picket fence in that house, it is so isolating. We were so isolated. It isolates you from your community, it isolates you from, from you know, your people. And maybe this is not the case if you're able to continue having that in your life. But for me, that's what it did. And it isolated my mother from her family, mm-hmm. very much so. So there's a there was a big, big, big price we paid for that, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it definitely brings a lot of reckoning, right, to the surface. There is a lot to unlearn. There's a lot to process. So I think, how long does that process take? Is it something that you in a way work through, or is this something that's just like a part of your life that you have to sort of like unravel at times? And then it's like, I think about it like a gold chain that's been tangled up, right? You kind of start. So, (laughs) so what is that? What is it like for you? So I'll take that metaphor and I'll run with it. So, you know, you know what my little pincers are, you know, the little pincers you use to tease it apart, 15 years of weekly therapy. That's, that's take that metaphor and run, you know, how much easier is it to do with the pincers than it is with your fingers, right? Once you can really get at it. So that's what I've been doing and working on myself. And it's one of those things, you know, my therapist always reminds me like he has tons of clients and yes, it's a, he, and yes, he's an old man. He's like Obi-Wan Kenobi. I call him my Obi-Wan Kenobi, my, my Yoda. He's an old hippie and a, and a piece of work. And I always thought I couldn't work with a white man, especially, but you never know where you're going to find your, you know, the people that help you. And he says to me, you know, I have a lot of clients, but you do the work. You have to do the work yourself. When you go into therapy, they're not going to fix you. What they're going to do is they're going to lead you places, you know, that you're going to go and have you see things that maybe you haven't seen. And then you sit with it and then you process it. Right. And processing means looking at it. Yeah. You know, in, in Buddhism, which you know, I'm sure, is that when you, when you look at the fear, it loses its power. When you look at what you're terrified of or what hurts you and you really look at it, it loses its power. I started learning that when I force myself to be creative, what I end up producing is not, it's not very good. So I have to come like basically pay attention to myself well enough that I can align with the moments where it's like, okay, I feel it. Like I feel it right now. So let me write it and let me not really delay. So, you know, there are months where I write, you know, I'll I'll write a bunch of stuff like every day for a whole month. And then it'll be like a whole nother month where there's nothing. And I think that's, you know, that's fine. That's just how, how it works for me. And even with writing lighter, it, I think I wrote it over like an eight month process, but it was very like start, stop, start, stop. And that was okay. And, you know, over time it was all, you know, put together and it was something that I felt like I could really sort of stand on, you know, a book where, because I wanted to make a book that was evergreen in the sense that like, 
you know, whether it's now or whether it's 10 years from now, I'm like, okay, yes, this is like, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I put that together in that way. Yeah. Did you write this during the pandy? Oh, yeah. That that and Clarity and Connection, the one that I wrote before, they're both both pandemic babies. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know if the I didn't know if that was written before. No. So Clarity and Connection, like that was very, very beginning of the pandemic. And so this one, like that, that book focuses more on relationships. And that really kind of came from my wife and I just figuring out like how we were going to exist together in a harmonious manner, you know, in our one bedroom apartment in New York City. <laughs> So we'll we'll definitely add that to the show notes so people can check that out as well. I, you know, there's so much in the world of relating to others and relationships that we have in our own ecosystem and the way in which we learn about them and we learn about ourselves and, you know, different moments where we can take repetitive lessons and actually make change in our in our lives. I'm curious for you how that was different. That relationships book was different than the relationship portion of Lighter. Oh, that's a, that's a great point cuz in Clarity and Connection, right? Like that book was still me sort of quietly hiding, not not hiding, but just like quietly sitting behind the name Young Pueblo. Whereas like in the relationships portion of Lighter, I had to just like tell my story and I had to talk a lot about, you know, my favorite person in the world, my wife, and um, talk about how we met, how we came together and how it was just like a mess, you know, the first few years that we were together and really, you know, just kind of connect these sort of lessons that I talk about these like um, ideas and points of reflection that that I'm hoping people kind of bring into their relationship. Mm-hmm. I talk about where they come from and it comes from like literally the lived experience of us trying to figure out how to build harmony, not just within ourselves as individuals, but within this relationship that we're both taking care of. Yeah. There, I want to read my the one that just it landed when I read this in the relationships portion. It's page 147 and it says, we allow ourselves to love because it's worth the risk. Even though there is the chance of loss or hurt, we take the leap again and again because love is one of the best parts of being alive. We don't do it because it's easy. We do it because connection makes everything brighter. Yeah, thank you. I remember writing that poem and was just like, because so that's one one thing that I wanted to do with Lighter was I know that, um, you know, people have known me as a poet and as a prose writer. So I wanted to make sure to add some like a few short pieces, I think about like 14 of them I added in there to just kind of, you know, keep that sort of similar tone so that the book wouldn't seem so different to my previous readers. But then at the same time, like it's a full nonfiction book. So like you're going to get a lot more than what you would normally get in the first two books. Yeah, you give us the juice, you give us the goods. Yeah. <laughs> you give us the the secret sauce. If you don't mind sharing a little bit with the audience, where Young Pueblo came from, like where did the idea come from or what was happening inside you that decided this Mm -hmm. is this is how I want to bring my work into the world yeah thank you so young pueblo I mean it literally it emerges from emerges from my Ecuadorianness. so I was born in Ecuador in Guayaquil and I came to the United States when I was about four years old so 
uh, really, you know, grew up American. I'm like and, Latino um, gang. Sorry, I just had yeah, to go on. That's us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, Young Pueblo is literally the sort of like the combination of my Americanness and my Ecuadorianness. And like Pueblo is just the word in my, I mean, it's used all over Latin America in a lot of different ways, but in my country, it's um, refers to like the masses of people. And when I started meditating, like this name, like at first it was just a name that I liked, but it took on new meaning when I started meditating and I started seeing how immature I was and mm -hmm. how, how much growing up I had to do. And I've always loved history and I've, you know, been studying it my whole life. And um, I started seeing that humanity as a whole is also really immature. Like we have a lot of growing up to do. And what really clicked was, you know, when we go to kindergarten, like that's really the um, that moment where the deep socialization starts happening and our teachers try to teach us the most basic things. You know, even before we like start learning how to count and read, they want us to learn how to how to share, how to like, be kind to one another, how to tell the truth and how to not hit each other. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are like fundamentals, but we don't know how to do those fundamentals collectively. Like as a human society, like, you know, talking about the billions of us. So we, to me, like until we get those right, we're not really yet fully mature. So I think this, this century in particular, it feels like this like massive opportunity for growth as individuals and collectively and to me, when I started writing, I was like, oh, I, I want to write within this context, like within this context of Young Pueblo, like as all of us are here maturing. Yeah, oh, that lands and I love it. And I think it's so true. I'm curious for you in your writing process, if there was a portion or a chapter or part of the book that was harder to write than the rest, and if there was an easier portion to write than the rest with regard to your writing process. Yeah, that's funny. So I think the the chapters on self-love, healing, letting go, those were very smooth to write because I have been like talking about those for a number of years and, you know, not just like in my books, but in interviews and all of that. So these are like ideas that have crystallized over time, have gotten mature. But then the last part of the book, the last two chapters, I was really, you know, I was like, sort of psyching myself up and just telling myself, okay, like tell the, you know, let people know, like let people know why, like what's the point of all of this. And the, the point is really to connect the bridge between personal healing and global transformation to note that, you know, there have always been people who've been trying to change the world for the better, but now we have this healing generation that's emerging. And that's really been the missing piece is that when people gain power, like power functions like a magnet and it pulls out the roughest, ugliest parts of our ego. And because we're now able to heal ourselves and we have so much more accessibility in regards to healing, that actually helps us better handle these big transitions or better handle any sort of power if there is power you know, that comes to us. I think I had to really just like gather my courage to tell the truth about like, you know, what I thought about like global structures and like, you know, mentioning capitalism, mentioning communism, mentioning like all these things that are, I think a lot of like personal development writers don't really touch, but I was like, you know, like I've been thinking about these things for a long time and I feel like we need to respect that we are a collective while maintaining the freedom of the individual. And I just had to say it. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm glad that you did because I feel like, especially in the world of 
self-development or mm-hmm. spirituality or, or however you want to frame it, we do tend to veer on the side of positivity and the silver lining and let's focus on the good. And I've always been a fan of, no, let's shine the light into the dark spaces. You know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, the world kind of sucks sometimes. And I think we need to live there a little bit and really see the ugliness that is there. You know, I think that for me, that's what has really fueled my life's work, you know, growing up in East LA during the LA riots Mm -hmm. in a gang filled Mm -hmm. environment. Like I got to see all of those sides. Right. And then as I became a a teacher and I, you know, my intention was, I want to bring mindfulness and meditation to, you know, like my people, like my homies, like the people that really need to do this work so that they can thrive in their lives, you know, because I feel like everybody has that opportunity and ability within themselves, right? So I think when we're not talking about the ugly parts and we're just focusing, right, that I think is the ultimate, I guess what people would say in our world is spiritual bypass, right? Mm -hmm. We're just like Mm -hmm. not focusing on the parts that rub up against that edge that makes us uncomfortable that we don't want to see, right? It's like seeing a homeless person on the side of the road. You know, you don't really want to look at them because it makes you feel some type of way, right? Or it's the example, you know, like for Tori and I were driving and, you know, we see a stray dog. It's like you might be on your way to work or on your way to an important appointment that you can't miss. And you think, oh, somebody else will pull over. Somebody else will do it. And what if you're that somebody else? Right. And for you, it's like, I love the fact that you mentioned that because to me, I'm like, oh, you're that leader in our space that can do this, that can bring this to light, that can have these conversations. And in a sense, the way you do it too, is like, you're opening up a dialogue. It's not like you're saying, you know, I mean, you're stating the way things are, but I think it's more important for us to be able to have a dialogue, to see and understand the dynamics that are in a way taking our power and how we can reestablish ourselves. So this is actually was one of the questions that I had was what, advice or what would you suggest for people out here in our space specifically that feel like they don't have power or they don't want to ruffle feathers or they don't want to have the hard, they don't want to create content having difficult topics come up? What would you say to them? Ah, that's tough. You know, um, I think in a lot of ways, it's it's it really boils down to what you said, where like if we're really trying to fully accept ourselves, then we have to accept the darkest parts. And a lot of those parts are heavily influenced by what society has encoded inside of us. So like, I always go back to this quote by Jiddu Krishnamurti. He says that um, the inner creates the outer and the outer molds the inner. And that's the part that we're often forgetting is the outer molds the inner. So I think... Like, I think we need to take it as, as an opportunity, right? Like, like political language is often very divisive. Like the, mm-hmm. it's sort of, it's, it sets off triggers and people yeah. immediately, immediately pick sides. But I remember I talked to someone once where we were talking about um, like leftist politics and whatnot. And, and um, like in, uh, in like Marxism, there's this thing called dialectical materialism that tries to explain the world. And And I was talking to my friend and I was like, you know what? I was like, people will understand compassion before they understand dialectical materialism. So I think for a lot of us, like it's really important to understand politics, but when we want to 
talk about how we change the world, often we come to it from a space of like talking about it through emotions. Yeah. And the reality is that like emotions are just much easier to understand. And that's why I wrote in the book about building a structural compassion and trying to just set the stage for people to reflect on what is like a compassionate structure even look like? How can I imagine this? Right. Because ultimately like whether you see yourself on the right or the left, like there are immense commonalities. Like you want to be safe. I want to be safe. You want good schools for your kids. I want good schools for my kids. Like you want good healthcare. I want good, you know? So it's like, but then people still find these ways to divide. But I feel like a lot of us on this, in this like self-help space, we should try to have these conversations, but using our equanimity, using our compassion, using our peace and trying to be more imaginative about how we have these conversations so that there's more potentials for these commonalities to arise as opposed to pointing fingers, blaming, and just creating more divisiveness. So I think we should keep trying. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.